right, let's take it away. Uh, so we are talking about by popular demand, which is to say someone on the internet, <laughs> um, uh, about Joel Spolsky's Strategy Letter 5 from 2002. But before we do, Adam, I feel we need to talk, we just need to wrap some things up from last week, just briefly. <laughs> okay. I didn't really, this is a surprise. All right. <laughs> a little surprise. Uh, one, um, that was a lot of fun, actually. I really, I, I, that was just, it was great yeah, to hear. Uh, to, and so, um, and I, I saw, um, where did, uh, Tim was here. I thought there he is. I'm going to ask Tim to speak. Um, so Tim, I've invited you to speak. Hopefully you can join us. So, um, I started buying a couple of these books and then Amazon, of course, is just extremely excited that I, and is now throwing all these suggestions at me. One of which was this book, Endless Loop, that I got, that I love. It's so good. This is a history of basic, which I'm really enjoying. That's a great title too. Oh, it's a great title. Well, well, I mean, the third time's a charm. This guy's written two other histories of basic, which I think is great, <laughs> including okay and not okay. Uh, to the, but it's really good. I, 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 um, but there was a line in this that I tweeted out over the weekend that I just found. I, I don't know if you saw this. Adam, first of all, did you ever code basic? Uh, you know what? I, like, not seriously. I mean, this is why the endless loop is so appealing to me because um, that's basically the basic I coded on the Apple IIe in the computer lab. The like print Brian smells go to ten. Right. Okay. So you never actually. So no. Ne- I know uh, the closest I got was I did some Visual Basic, but but very different. Right. So so you kind of post date just slightly, not by much. Yes. Only the, 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 by this much. is like the total like the what five years between difference between exactly. us is, is where it basic is where it, where it shows up. So there's this line in the, and I think this is just absolutely delightful that the well one per our Martian conversation last time. Uh, Kemeny, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, really interesting guy. Kemeny and Kurtz are the, the uh, inventors of BASIC, but he's one of the Martians. So he is with von Neumann and Erdős and so on, uh, becomes the president of Dartmouth at a really young age. Really interesting kind of story there. Um, very progressive thinker. Um, invented the, the part of the – I mean I always viewed BASIC as like uh, a punishment as opposed to being like actually <laughs> – Deliberately trying to actually make it accessible. It was actually I was not going to get enough credit, but I love the fact that they call the basic that I learned street basic, which I think is like I want to put that on like a resume or something. Like I I came up on the mean streets of street basic. That's right. You, you don't have book smarts basic. You have street. Basic. Street basic. Yeah. He's like no. I get. It. And then okay. So Tim, you are here, and I'm wondering if you can get because you had this response that I just thought was incredible on the, the Gibsonian flavor. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your, I'd like you to do an out loud reading of this tweet. Is that unreasonable to ask? To demand. Well, yes. Uh, well, I mean, I, I have a copy of Neuromancer here in front of me. I, I recently read it and I guess it was fresher on my mind. So are you adopting a, well, first, would you, can I ask you to do an out loud reading? Do you mind if I put you on the spot to do an out loud reading from your Oh, tweet? yeah, yeah, it was, it, uh, well, you first. Uh, it, it was a response to your tweet. 
Well, so my tweet is, I've, I feel I've already shown you mine. I've, my okay, tweet is all about street, ba- that I came up learning street basic. <laughs> yeah. Um, mine was basically just, hey, that sounds like Gibson. Um, Case snapped the ROM into his deck and paused. His ice stayed quiet. A noose strobe, or a new shape flickered in the corner of his vision, strobing amber at 60 hertz. He turned to squint at the glowing text. It was street basic, a cowboy's mother tongue. Oh, beautiful. Uh, it's just it's just monkey see, monkey do. It's just, you know, trying to evoke that style. Okay, well, so here's my question. Cowboys, so hey, I called Hector's cowboy, you know. Is, is that a, a, like, a particular passage, or is that written in the style of Gibson? Yeah, I, I just, I just... I just stole some lingo he uses. Jesus. Uh, Case, Case is the name of his character. He talks about ROMs and ICE for, you know, intrusion countermeasures and, um, you know, people aren't hackers. They're console cowboys. So, you know, yeah, it's just the lingo. It's, okay, I'm just telling you it's fucking art, man. That was great. <laughs> it was so good. It was so literary. I, I feel that, like, I, I'm not really a – like, that speaks to me more than Gibson itself, honestly. Not the, not the to I, – I just I feel that it was uh, terrific. Very, very well written. And it reminds me of the imitation Hemingway contest winner at Microsoft that I actually like more than Hemingway itself. I th- so I, the imitation can be better than the original, and I think that that is the case here. I'd love to say. I, I, I'm actually – Strictly speaking, much too young to have grown up with basic, but I did anyways. Um, I was very, my family was very, very poor. I uh, had a hand-me-down Apple II that a neighbor gave us, um, like, in the mid-90s. And um, I taught myself basic from one of the Apple books that came with the computer when I was, you know, eight or nine years old, and it, it felt like magic. So there is there's some there is something great about that that the this is reminds me of Antranic had that line too Adam earlier at an earlier space about how not having a lot as a kid you know you had you still had this magical machine even though it was a hand me down in the mid nineties it's a decade out of date Tim you're still able to make this thing do magical things many years after its putative prime. Yeah, I mean, occasionally someone asks me, why are you a programmer? I tell them, well, I wanted to be a wizard, but this is the closest I could do. I, I wanted to book first-class tickets on Pan Am to Paris. Like, that's the reason that I'm, I mean, come on. I, that's a, um, it's a war game reference, kids. Yeah, I got, I'm, I'm hanging with you with the war game reference. I, I, okay, is that, that's, you know, there, there was a time when you might not always, so it's, it's good. Yeah, don't tell me about it, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm relieved. Uh, but, but you're right, there, there is that, uh, First, a um, you know creativity from adversity, but then also just like a simpler era where you could put all these pieces together without it being quite as complicated. But you know, the kids today are building computers out of Minecraft. It's like yeah, the, the, that's true. The, the, they recreate that simplicity for themselves, which I think is pretty. That's, that's right. They, they don't have a parallel. They don't have a parallel port, and they can't like flash GPIOs. But they do have Minecraft and. It's it's very different, but you're right that it's it's scratching a very similar. I actually disagree with that. I mean, they have Arduinos, which do have GPIO ports, maybe not parallel ports, but something very analogous to that. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, no, they they do, but but it's not uh, in agreed that they they have access to the same kinds of things. But I think it's it's not as 
It's not necessarily in the family PC. Like, it used to be in the family but PC. But you, you have to admit, Adam, now you want to have, like, Dan's guy so, who's GPIO-based parenting. If, <laughs> if, if you guys don't mind, I would like to uh, tie together um, the, this, this topic of using basic past its prime with an aspect of, of uh, the history of accessible computing that I didn't get to cover a few weeks ago. Yeah, go for it. So... So there were in you know, starting in the late 80s and going up through the early 2000s one of the earliest uh PDAs if you remember that term that were designed specifically for blind people was a device called the Braille and Speak and it it was it was a it was a portable a, a portable device with with a braille keyboard and and uh text to speech output and it was running, it was you know, battery powered, you know, running a Z80 processor. It first came out in 1987, and I think they discontinued it in like 2000 or 2001. But there was, there's a, <clears throat> a there's a, there was a blind kid in like 2002 who uh, was using one of these Braille and Speak devices as his way of taking notes and doing assignments in class at school. And this device had a basic interpreter on it and that was his introduction to programming. So that's pretty great. And I, I very much, and, and, and he, he became a, a protege of mine through a mutual friend. So, but uh, his introduction to programming was on this, was on this you know, PDA designed for blind people using basic. That, that is awesome. You know, you know, I should say, uh, I should copy up my, I, I've never written basic with, I did a lot of programming on the TI-82 back in the day, um, yeah. which was its own flavor of basic. So, you, Adam, you got to read this book, man, because the, 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 the <laughs> no, the Trash 80 is all over this place. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, uh, you'll like it. Sweet. Yeah, I'm into it. All right. So that is, uh, sorry, I just had to get that out. Uh, there we go. It's cool. Clearing, clearing the slate, and now clearing the slate. Oh. Now only eleven minutes in. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, did you read this thing when it originally came out, Adam? I mean, if I did, I mean, so this came out when in in two thousand two. Can I jump? Can oh, I sure. jump back to the previous thing real quick? Sure. sure. Um, the the very first ISP that I worked for, we had a blind user, and he was using, I believe, it was actually a very very early version of. One of the assistive software programs from Dragon, and I remember going over to his apartment because he lived two blocks away from us to help him get set up. And the thing I noticed was what it was actually doing was it was reading off all of these syscalls that were happening. So, like when a dialogue box oh, popped up, it would be like oh, dialogue, blah blah blah, button, blah 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 button blah 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 and then when he would click the mouse it would be like mouse button down mouse button up and so like that must have been like a very early windows screen reader it was doing that but i remember thinking this would actually be a sorry really guys I, I, we're, i'm taking you this space further afield <laughs> no don't worry Matt. no it's I, I remember thinking how great that would be as an introduction to the windows syscall like if you were trying to become a Windows programmer, you could just sit there and turn that on and just listen to it all day. And you would just start to pick up 
what was going on. I don't think I'm acquainted with this program that you're talking about, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of any Windows screen reader that was quite as raw as what you're describing. But then I did come into that whole uh, aspect of, of accessible computing a little bit late. So anyway. Well, I love this idea of like an S-Trace or Trust sonar yeah, exactly. that you just have on the background. That sounds awesome. Uh, and uh, well, then it also has to be said that because this, Tom, I know oh, the, the, the Snoop option to generate uh, network traffic over dev audio. Um, in fact, I don't even, Tom, even, Tom, do you really think about that? That wouldn't even been you. Uh, but this was kind of famously Snoop would generate uh, output over dev audio. Do you remember this, Adam? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, I never used it productively, but there were certain. I definitely never used it productively. thought they could. <laughs> exactly. Tom, were you the guilty party? That was useful. That was genuinely useful. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. But... Oh, I, I remember that. I, we used to do stuff like, uh, you know, pipe the output of ping through sed and change the word bytes to a control G or something. And that would be really useful because if you were like tracing down a break in thin net, you'd run that on a workstation and start mucking around with the ethernet cables. And when you found the, you know, the segment that had been disconnected, all of a sudden you heard these beeps coming from all down the hallway. That was, that was incredibly useful. This is like automating my role <laughs> in every home construction project, which is basically to tell my father when the light was on or off um, from upstairs or what have you. And the, the uh, yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, so the, the, uh, so strategy letter five, strategy letter five. from Joel. Uh, <laughs> Joel. I no. So if I read it back in two thousand two, I have no memory of it. Uh, do you? Do you, I mean? Did you read it? Do you? Do you remember I reading don't know. This? I I definitely don't remember reading it. If I read it at the time, because I was trying to remember, like trying to remember the the go go days of two thousand two. Um, <laughs> this is before blogging, more or less. Like I'm not sure where I would have yeah. read it. I mean, I guess well, he just would have like put it on his website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um. um but you're right. It was it was before blogging was as broadly as the thing as it became for sure. But this was right up your alley, and not to like out you as the economics nerd that you are or were, but like <laughs> this is. But I guess I just did. But this is like right in in your in your crosshairs, right? It is. And the I wrote a piece two years later that I don't. Part of the reason I don't think I read this is because I didn't refer to it in my, the economics of software piece that I wrote two years later. I, and I feel that like. There are some truisms in here, but – well, actually, let me ask you. What's your take on this? I thought it was very thought-provoking, but there were definitely some pretty big, uh, pretty big holes in the arguments. Um, you know, in particular, identifying total cost of ownership as being a critical factor, but then ignoring that for, for lots of convenient examples. Yeah, and I, I feel that he's got a little bit of that Microsoft hangover – I mean, you can take the boy out of Microsoft, but you can take Microsoft out of the boy, apparently. Um, in the, the, there's a little bit of that pejorative sense that he has towards open source, just in general. Um, there's also, like, there are a couple of lines in here that are just, like, he's got a line, because I think, here's the, like, the big thing that he misses, that is, I think, very important for understanding not just software, but, or not just open source software, but software, is this idea that the cost of goods sold the, co the, the cost to manufacture software is zero. And I feel that is an, that's an extremely important detail. It doesn't, once you've written it, it doesn't cost anything to manufacture. 
Yeah, I, I, t- I totally agree. And I had that written down as a note where, um, and that the supply is infinite. And, I mean, and that's, that's part, that's that's right. part and pos- parcel of what you're saying. But if you drive up demand, your, like your, your, your cogs is, is the same. Your, I mean, your distribution is, you know, I, again, in this, back in the day, back in that day, there was a printed CD and like a box and shrink wrap and that kind of stuff. But, but even then. God, we're so old. The, yeah. I, so, so you have this line, it's like debugged code is not free, whether proprietary or open source. It's like, actually, it actually is. Sorry. It, I mean, it is, debugging code is not free. Like if you've got code that's defective, getting that debugged is not free. But if you have code that's debugged or code that has bugs in it, that if you have software, that software actually is free from like a manufacturing perspective. Well, I did. I think that does tack into one of his great lines, which was casting. Well, a bunch and of keeping it debugged in a changing environment is you know, so maintenance is also not free. That's sure, the rub, right? I mean, like when he says that it's not free, I think that's what he's referring to. That is definitely what he's implicitly referring to: is that it, it, this kind of ongoing maintenance of software. But I also feel that this misses something important about software in that, yes, I mean, we always think about software maintenance, but software actually doesn't need maintenance in any traditional sense. Software doesn't actually wear out. And especially if it's running on a platform that has managed to be stable. Case in point, uh, a speech synthesizer that I use every day was last updated in 2002. That's a great Case in point, actually, Matt, is that the, you have something that basically the, the things around it haven't changed. And so the hardware will long since wear out, um, but the software lives on. So on the one hand, yes, like improving software is not free, but this is like the paradox of software that's like super expensive to develop but, at some level. But, but I think part of the problem is that any, any software business model relies on obsoleting software. Well, and, and I would I would even suggest that sometimes it's the data that that software interacts with that is obsoleting the software in terms of like, I have a Macintosh from 1996 that still boots up. It's got a copy of Netscape Navigator on it of that vintage. That copy of Navigator starts up fine, but it is essentially useless to me because it cannot make sense of today's web. And of course, my preferred speech synthesizer from 2002 isn't keeping up with changes in the language. For instance, it didn't know how to pronounce coronavirus. Oh, interesting. How does it pronounce it? Uh, cor- coronavirus or something right, like that. Right, of course. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Wait, sure. But the in the, the bowels of software, you have small bits of software that grow larger over time that actually the things around them don't change and that they actually are. I mean, I don't know, Adam, I'm sure you've had this, this a couple of times where we've had flashbacks to software we've written 20 years ago. That's been untouched in the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in fact, I was debugging some of it today where, um, you know, uh, kind of offhanded jokes I had made in the D trace source code, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, kind of caught me off guard today. So yeah. And, it, and it's just cranking along. <laughs> And I think that like that's an important, really important thing to understand because this piece is all about like, oh, I'm going to uh, drive down the price of my complementary goods, and I think it kind of 
misses the boat in terms of open source's ability to create a larger pie and be able to, if I can, and he definitely misunderstands Sun in this piece. I don't know, Adam, why don't you feel about his... Sorry, uh, just another sort of meta point, which is um, he makes reference to cathedrals and bazaars in the essay. Um, And I don't know, is it, uh, did anyone else wonder if, you know, because, uh, you know, Eric Raymond's essay came out in 99. So it's almost like he took the point from Cathedral and the Bazaar and like kind of argued the opposite. Oh, yeah, and he, for sure. I mean, he's a cathedralist, um, but so I'm, I, I'm like, there I'm kind of sympathetic. Because I, I mean, the bazaar versus cathedral is a false dichotomy, right? Uh, but this, it's a good point, I mean, in that the the cathedral versus the bazaar is much more uh, current in 2002 than it is. To, I don't, to what degree do people still know about that? Have you read the, is it a piece or a book? Try, you know, essay. It, it was an essay that became a book collection of essays, I believe. I think, right. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. The, the, I, I definitely feel I've seen it in both form factors. And I feel, I mean, that is the, that is a huge false dichotomy. I, okay. All right. So, hot take Cathedral in the Bazaar actually sets open source back. That idea. It's because it's too reductive. It's too reductive. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it, 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 and it, it basically says, if you believe in in engineered deliberate software, you are a proprietary cathedralist. And similarly, if you are participating in an open source project, you are in this like totally unplanned helter skelter bazaar. It's like actually, no. Oh, or perhaps it was a dichotomy that was relevant at the time for helping to explain things perhaps but that may be overly generous, i think i agree outlived. with that and, and not only because i happen to work for a company that runs open source projects in what cathedral in the bazaar would call a very cathedral-like fashion i i, mean, I actually kind of disagree with the entire thesis there this example of the cathedral was emacs i mean <laughs> that is not... <laughs> i didn't realize that okay. i mean that was that was the example that was posited in the original essay um, right Emacs and GCC were presented as, as examples of cathedral model, where the source code was only available each time the software was released, like there was a point release or a major release. But between releases, they were restricted for, to an internal group, whereas the bizarre model was everything was developed in the public on the internet. So, you know, both the cathedral and bizarre in that respect are open source. It's just different flavors of open right. source. I, I, I do believe that one of the fundamental advantages of Linux was the development model, you know, willingness to take contributions from anywhere. I, so I agree with you, Tom. I think that the, the, to me, a fundamental advantage was that it was forkophilic, not forkophobic, um, in that it encouraged yeah. people to go do experiments and was, did not insist on, and I realized that like, I need to go, maybe I need to go, it kills me to like uh, to just because I, Eric Raymond is such a um, anyway. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> how can I how can I consume this without giving him any royalties? Because um, I, I, I do realize that maybe I have falsely read into it that it was kind of a proprietary versus open model. But that is funny that it, that Emacs is the canonical cathedral. Um, so fine, I believe what? in open cathedrals. 
I was wondering if maybe there was also, it's been a long time since I read it, but I'm wondering if maybe there was implicit contrast with the way the BSDs did things where there was a group that had commit bits yeah, and anything that happened had to go through that group. That, that really is, is the, the critical distinction in the Linux world. Like, and you were working with things like CVS or later Subversion that didn't have the same no, uh, again forkophilic. No, uh, that that wasn't that wasn't so mm -hmm. much it. I mean, the the thing that really contrasted Linux versus as, as the canonical bazaar was this kind of like we take from everything. And if you talk to some of the folks who were involved in both the BSD community and the early Linux community, they'll talk about hey, Linux was great because we didn't have to satisfy the gods of BSD before we could get something, you know, into the distribution. Just don't invent a rampant layer violation, apparently. <laughs> well, there was also the whole era when there were the AC patches to the Linux kernel, and there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, the, the mainline Linux kernel is great, but if you want to get anything done on modern hardware, you need the AC patches. And then later on, they got merged back into the mainline kernel. Well, and I guess that that's right. What I, I kind of meant is that there, there was this uh, contentment to have things live down. That I think is actually very healthy. I think it's 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 good for people to be able to go off and do um, experiments and be able to go develop things on their own and be able to take the system in different directions. I would argue also, personally, obviously, that because there's so much that is only eighty percent complete, um, and uh, in in Linux in particular, and there's a lot of things that are that would benefit from being thought out by the way brian to answer your your passing uh question or comment about how you could read the essay without giving eric raymond any royalties the original essay is available on his website a web but does, he, does that website have ads on it so you know i gotta ask him <laughs> no we're talking about <laughs> eric raymond his website does not have ads <laughs> that's fair 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 point Fair point. All right. Yeah, okay. I guess I can go safely consume it. Um, so, but one of the things... And if you don't want to give him any traffic, I'm sure you could pull it from the Internet Archive. Yeah, there we go. That, that, that's how I'll do it. I can, I can figure out a way to do it. Um, it the, so the, I also want to give, I mean, I think Joel credit for being... I mean, there's certain elements in here that I think are prophetic. Um, I do think that that it's prophetic in terms of seeing open source as being in a company's commercial best interests. I feel like that was not something that people really, that was, that was uh, not a widely held view in 2002. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that his, uh, although in the early days, it felt was 2002 like was before some... or after SCO had sued IBM before, I think. Uh, I believe that that is going to be, after, but close, right? Um, I was... Like, it's post-Halloween memos, but I don't remember how far post... A lawsuit's filed in 2003, according to this The Halloween year. memo, the original Halloween memo was 1998. So the Halloween memo may... Uh, that merits, I think, an explanation. This is the because uh, the, the Howie memo is the is the, the Microsoft document, right? Yes, um, and if I remember, I don't remember if it was the Halloween memos or if it was, uh, or if it was leakage of verbal statements that he made, but it was the kind of origin, at least in era, of 
the Microsoft viewpoint that open source is a cancer, the GPL is a cancer, uh, you know. Open I think source. Steve Ballmer actually came out and said that in like 2000. <laughs> right, exactly. I want to say that. Yeah, it, it was Steve Ballmer that said it, and it was it was it set the tone for quite some time. Well, and I guess and I guess that's prophetic too, in that they correctly realized. I mean, this is this is a, a, a kind of a, a moronic thing to say, but uh, open source is a really big deal, actually. Yeah, like, they, 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah. The, 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 just the deeper I get into my career, the more I, and especially, and I think we said this before here, but like going back and reading tales of software development in the '90s makes you realize how far we've come in a world of, like, I mean, for example. Having to pay for your compiler is insane, right? We we have not had to do that for a generation, and you know no one is ever going to pay for a compiler ever again, more or less. And then again, sometimes you read uh, oh I, there you read comments on like Hacker News about how we developers are entitled cheapskates that aren't willing to pay for quality tools. I, we have got the, I mean, honestly, the highest quality development environment I've ever used in my career is the one I'm using right now. And it's 100% open source. I mean, it, it, we are getting, I mean, the tooling, I feel, has just gotten better and better and better. And there are, I mean, this is, I, I kind of hate, like, I'm like Eric Raymond and now Naval, but the, um, you know, used to tweet about, like, the thing about open source is that problems only need to be solved once. And that is, there's a lot of truth to that, actually. And that is well, really, other, really powerful. The other thing, though, is that, you know, these tools are really good because they're built by people who want to use them, not by people who want to sell them. And so you satisfy yourself, and it makes it really good. That is definitely true. I will accept shoddy open source tooling that I can patch myself of a proprietary tooling that I can't fix when it annoys the shit out of me any day. Well, this is what I, you know, we point internally, you know, obviously at Oxide, we definitely believe in open source software. Um, but, you know, we actually really believe in high quality software. And actually the, the proprietary software that's high quality doesn't bother me nearly as much as the, as the proprietary software that's, that needs to be fixed. For, and the problem is that there's very little of that proprietary software that's high quality. Well, on that topic, Joel talked about, was it open office or star office? which is a great example, I think, of the opposite, where it got no traction because it was not anywhere near the, the quality of the proprietary alternatives. Well, and I think, yeah, that's, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Adam, because that kind of gets us to like the big thing that I think that he, and I mean, in his defense, like no one really saw coming, the degree to which we would use software as a service to even edit our documents, right? The fact that we use Google, I mean, I don't Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay to, to admit that. Right, <laughs> right can I, you might have said space. Can I talk about Google Docs here? But I, I, yeah. it, it, And that I would never, again, install. I certainly wouldn't, and that I'm never in my life going to install proprietary software on a desktop machine to edit a document. That's never going to happen again. It's interesting that you mention that in the context of SAS, though, because for quite some time now, uh, Richard Stallman and the, and the FSF have been on a bit of a crusade against SAS to the point of, as they oh, do so often, soft, uh, what is it, service as a software Service as a software substitute. Yeah. And so they really consider SAS just to be another 
proprietary presentation of software because you don't get the source code. You can't modify it. You can't do anything. But and you it. can't even hack around it to in the ways that you might be able to if it were running locally on your machine. Sure. <laughs> I mean, th th yes, but. Right. I mean, the, the, I, I, this is where I, I think that the FSF sometimes loses the, the, the forest for the trees, um, where, uh, the, 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 sure, um, but the, to me, open source is about actually creating the components more than the actual products. And it's like, yeah, with a, when I'm consuming a service, I actually am consuming a product. And I, uh, it, it is actually more important to me that I, that I can get to those underlying components because I can actually build on those components. Give me the Lego brick so I can go build my own thing. Um, I actually don't need Gmail to be open source. It's uh, personally, but I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe that's that. that no, that's no, I think, I think you're right. And, and when it comes well, to the productivity and, and software, I'm most gonna... of the people from the free software foundation would go back and point out that we, the FSF are talking about free software. You're talking about open source and that's not the same thing. Yeah, I think we're getting hit a bit by the Twitter Spaces delays too. Um, the um, yeah, the sorry, Adam. I think you were what were we saying? That's uh, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll step back for a second. <laughs> the um, yeah, and the distinction between well, I I, I I get where where they're coming from. I think that the the, the problem is that the FSF has lost its efficacy because they've. Um, I think that they end up picking the, the wrong fights and then ignoring the ones that are much more important, right? Like, can we get an amicus brief in Oracle v. Google, please? Um, but the... Um, Adam, one thing I wanted to, to kind of ask your take on it. Did you see... Have you read any of his other strategy letters, by the way? I read some as a result of this one, but I... I yeah, no, if I had, I didn't remember the previous one. So uh, how about you? I had, well, I mean, obviously, I remember reading his, like, 20 questions to ask your future employer or whatever. You, the, what is this? I don't remember that one. Oh, no, no, there's like a The checklist. Joel test. The, the Joel 12 test. point yes. Joel test. Yes, the Joel test. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is like, do they use source code control? Do they? Uh, I mean, I think this is arguably the, the, the most famous thing he's ever written. Um, the... Um, and I, now, when was the last time you've read the, Matt, I don't know if you've read the Joel test recently. So you you surely have seen the Joel test, Adam. If you saw it, you'd recognize it. I'll go look for it now. Yeah. The, um, I can't rattle off all 12 from memory, but I, I have read it. And, you know, I mean, it's like, some of it is like, do you have the best tools that money can buy? Uh, you know, do. So yes, zero dollars. Zero dollars. Exactly. Um, the so I, I remembered him from that, but I had not read his other kind of strategy letters. Um, the he's got a piece that uh, definitely believes that Gmail is not the future model, circa two thousand seven, which is interesting because like I, I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I necessarily would have disagreed with it in two thousand seven, but it's clearly well. What I what I recall from two thousand seven, so that was fun. If you're talking about strategy letter six from two thousand seven. What I recall from that one was that he thought that the current generation of web applications like Gmail were kind of akin to uh, the DOS generation of PC apps in that they they couldn't very they, they couldn't interoperate with each other very well, and he thought that uh, he thought that something akin to Windows was going to come along and be implemented on top of the web platform to allow these uh, 
these and, and of course this being 2007 ajax or web 2.0 or whatever you want to call it was still pretty hot and he he was he was trying to predict where where that generation of web apps was going to go and i i think i think he was wrong because and and well i i think what really happened was was that uh uh, the you know, web apps got upstaged by uh, by mobile uh, native apps. Although now, I mean, that's that's not to say that web apps are irrelevant. That 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 that's also a stupid false dichotomy. But that that's what I recall from that letter. Wasn't that the era when the Chromebook really came into being as a concept? Because two thousand before- Chromebook was two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. But I remember back in like 2007-ish, people were saying the web browser is going to be the new operating system. Everything yeah. that built on the web browser is the platform. Oh, what Netscape is, was is, predicting that as far back as the late 90s. Why does everything have to be the operating system of, of something? Well, Emacs was the original. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, Charles. Like, like, like Xfinity, <laughs> Xfinity. Well, who, who I'm not going to say too many bad things about, but but certainly like the uh, it's not this modem you sold me is not the operating system of my home. Um, we, don't call it. Don't call it that. I did, well, if you want the, the example, the Naples Ultra of this is WeWork. WeWork was making an operating system for buildings. The, 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 yes, and they view we are the critically op- though we are the op- not a building management system, which is a thing that exists already. Right? No, not a building management system. <laughs> that would be very pedestrian. We are building an operating system for the way you live, Josh. So everybody wants to be a platform, right? And so operating system is just a way to say that. Everybody wants to be a platform. No, Tom, why is that? Why does everyone want to be a platform? At least it's an ethos, I guess. Because there's a lot of lock-in and you know, being the center of the ecosystem. And so that's my read, too, is that people want to be a platform for purely out of their own capitalistic rapaciousness. That it's that there's not like a better reason than that. That like I well, am... and and the email thing like talking about looking back then from back then the the thing that happened with email was less about uh, the success of this one web application and more about how uh, a few large actors managed to make it almost impossible to run your own email. Actually, like the. The, the structure of email as a federated system is extremely difficult to participate in unless you are already Google. I think that was a, a <laughs> casualty of the spam arms race. Yeah, that was spam. That well, had very little sure, sure. Gmail. But between between Google and Microsoft with Outlook.com, it is effectively, and has been for quite some time, structurally basically impossible to ensure deliverability unless you are one of those like organizations. All right, and Brian, you were you were asking about the Sun uh, shout out in this in this uh, blog post, which is part of the reason I thought you were you were kind of kicking it my way on on Twitter the other day. I was. I accidentally um, muted everyone a second ago. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to mute everybody. Sorry, Adam. Go ahead. No, no problem. So, Sorry, I can uh, I can tell when you want me to stop. Exactly. I just. I just... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the like, what was your take having lived through uh, you know from what when you joined Sun ninety six through 2009 um you know did you what did you think of joel's take on on sun i mean and open source well obviously a gross caricature i mean the, the viewing sun i mean he's i think genuinely perplexed by sun's motivations because like sun's a hardware company why are they pushing java oh they're pushing java because of their hatred it's an emotional self-destructive act 
out of their emotional hatred of Microsoft. And it's like, come the fuck on, dude. Like, we are, I mean, come on. That is just, no. Uh, the I, I do feel that a core belief that I think, uh, Sun was not the only company that had this belief, but a core belief of Sun was about making the pie larger, that it was in everybody's interest to make the pie larger. And to me, and Tom, I would love to actually get your perspective on this because you lived it, but to me, truly one of the most iconoclastic things that Sun did was porting NFS to their rivals' platforms, porting it to Ultrix and to Irix back in the mid-'80s, right, Tom? Late-'80s, early-'90s? Oh, yeah, mid, mid to late-'80s. It was on everything that moved. But and uh, Sun didn't do those yeah. ports. They just released the source code as the reference implementation then hosted these uh like interoperability fests or something. But we, we we had actually a substantial consulting group that, that would do a lot of the work. Yeah. It's a Sun did that's right. That was my understanding. Yeah, Tom you could speak to it, but it's like it definitely happened because Sun was actively encouraging it and putting resources behind it. And it was a pretty different pretty different to what Microsoft then did with SMB. <laughs> a little different. A little, yeah, a little bit. Little bit. But you know, Sun and Microsoft were in talks for a while to converge, even even back very early on. And we we looked at the SMB protocol and all this stuff about printers, and it was like, well, this will never fit in in Unix. <laughs> Yeah, and the op locking. Oh, the op locking. Which is, it, it feels like it's not necessarily a bad idea. It's just fraught with peril. Well, locking and networking don't get along at all. Uh, yes, words to live by. Locking and networking definitely don't get along. Um, so I felt like that piece, Adam, that part of it was, I thought, pretty misplaced because I think it. Um, actually, maybe Tom. So t- taking that NFS as an example, what is going through the mind of Sun as they are pushing NFS? Because it's like maybe I maybe I am retrofitting my own view on a historical Sun, but my view was the belief in open systems was if we can get everybody collaborating on this protocol, we can get more people using networking computing. And if we get more people to use network computing, that's a bigger pie that we can go compete for. Right. But but it's also, you know, one, one of Joel's columns is all about switching costs. I forget which one, but, you know, it, it made it easy to insert Sun into some other environment. Um, you know, that was dominated by mini computers or whatever, if you, if you could have NFS and then, you know, just lots more walls came down. Yeah, this is something that I remember that that um, McNeely had a piece talking about the, the need for an off-ramp, that it was important for technology to have an off-ramp, which I actually, I, I mean, I think it's important for a, I mean, this is what people that use technology don't want to be locked in. We don't want to be locked in, right? I don't want to be locked in. You don't want to be locked in. When we, as technologists, make technology-based choices, we are we don't want to be locked in. We want to know, at least in the abstract, that we can go take ourselves elsewhere relatively easily. Yeah, but but similarly, you know, you you'd have companies that say, Oh, we're an IBM shop, and Sun could turn around and say, Well, look, we have NFS for the mainframe. You should try this out. So of course they'd have to buy a few workstations to try it out. Well, I think that was, you know, uh Joel says that, you know. Java and write once uh, run anywhere didn't make sense, but I think through that lens it was it was lowering the ba- the barriers to that to get that IBM shop, and you do well, that when you're in a point of strength when your hardware is better than other folks. Yeah, and, and Java succeeded at becoming a platform. Sun failed at monetizing it. 
So that that's the crux of Sun and software is that Sun can never monetize software. It was always hard. Microsoft has a pretty. I wonder if I wonder though if that was because they gave too much away, and eh. and and maybe they maybe they were pressured to give too much away because we've been conditioned by open source to expect our development tools for free. Well, they, they, they kind of well, the other thing is they they never had they never had anything above the platform. Yeah. And th- this is where a- Apple shines. Apple has all kinds of apps and it's a uh, appliance and blah blah blah. Yeah. Uh where Sun was always look at this great platform and but we're done. Sun was all about making standards but not providing reference implementations. And that was an issue in the early Java days. I remember being very enthusiastic about Java the first time I saw it. I was like, this is pretty cool. You know, I mean compared to like C it was especially C circle like nineteen ninety seven or something. I mean it was a pain of deal. Right. And, you know, then they were saying, like, hey, we're going to have, like, Java spaces and, you know, application servers and stuff. And you're like, cool, where do I get these things? It's like, go talk to WebLogic. They'll sell you one for half a million dollars. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. right. Well, I remember looking at some Java apps back in the day when people were, you know, actually intending to build Java desktop applications. And the only thing you could really get away with was to build them with, what was it, AWT yeah. or whatever, the... It's the advanced windowing toolkit and it abstract like windowing toolkit all the or as my high school programming teacher uh, in 97 called it the awful windowing toolkit yeah it looked like twm from 1986 you know so like aesthetically if if your experience of java was apps that looked like that you were like no something else Hey, just a quick mechanical note. I know we've got more folks requesting to speak than we've got. We get, Fortune Twitter Spaces only allows us to have a finite number of speakers. It's set at 12 right now, so we're at our cap. So if, just to um, – if we can get more folks – just to allow us to get more folks in there. Um, it's a little, little PSA. Sorry. I is there a way to relinquish my slot as a speaker uh, short of leaving the space and coming back in uh yes i think i don't know if you can relinquish it i can i can i can relinquish you <laughs> in the right. in the three dot menu at the top there is a switch to listening thing Ooh, there you go um but not everyone all at once um so sorry if <laughs> Yeah, folks that have been been um, requesting that. Um, Microsoft, Microsoft have been pretty addle-minded on this stuff for a long time, though. Like, I mean, for for a very long time, .NET was called cross-platform, and by which I think they meant, I don't know, both kinds of Windows, like <laughs> like, like NT and the other one. I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, I think they meant hardware platforms. Like they, their whole deal was, IL will run on Alpha and X eighty six, and you know, yes, I, yeah, <laughs> right, right. All by cross platform, I mean all the platforms on which we run, of course. Right, but they would say those things with a straight face, and people would like, "So, can I run it on Unix?" And it's like, "What is that?" That's, that, that, that's actually not what we meant exactly. Yeah, they, they they managed to convince most of the world that anything for Microsoft was open systems, right? Yeah, I mean, did they manage to convince the world of that? I don't know if they if they well not did or not as tech guys, but an awful lot of the world thought, oh, PC equals open. That is true. That is true that they thought that, which is kind of 
paradoxical because I don't necessarily anyway. Yeah, it is, I think you're right, Tom. That they definitely think that. Um, I mean, of course, it, to the mainframe world, anything non-mainframe was open systems. Right. It, uh, that's also true. Right. Everything was, was open by comparison. So I think this question about the uh, about Sun and and the, the I guess the monetization of Java is interesting. I, I, for whatever it's worth, Arthur Van Hoff just take this as a, just a statement of fact. Arthur Van Hoff told me in in what in 1997 that every E10K that was sold was sold because of Java. Now I obviously disagreed with this. <laughs> And in fact, I may have disagreed with this in a relatively colorful way that may have alienated the rest of the people at the dinner that I was at. But uh, that was definitely uh, his perspective um, was that. Sorry, Jason, go ahead. Well, I could see from part of it because the early versions of Java and Solaris were horrible. They were terrible. If you tried to do I.O., it would issue a system call, a read or write for every single byte. Well, yeah, and I think that the that I, I do feel that like the, the the failure is the failure to kind of connect all the dots. I feel that like you've got the uh, you've got the potential to build a great system, one that's open, one that customers believe in, um, but you do need to connect all the dots, and you need to actually. There's a lot of execution involved to get all that working. I mean, yeah, the I, line... think, I think Sun was slow slow to get Java going on the server side. They spent way too much time on mobile phones and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, yes. Amen. The, the line that definitely resonated was when he described Sun as a loose cannon. And uh, <laughs> th- that, that sounded right. And, and it also made me think that I think probably- they really overpromised with it as well because I remember how early it became a joke that Java was right once debug everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Surely, well, surely that's just software, though, right? I mean,. Yeah, but they had actually explicitly made the promise that because Java was bytecode compiled, you could write your Java app and it would run everywhere on every architecture. And, you know, it was going to be this magical new world of cross-platform software written, compiled to bytecode. And it just, it didn't, it didn't pan out. And if they hadn't promised it, no one would have expected it, but they did and people did. And then it was disappointing. What's the directory separator on MVS? Who says they have directories? Exactly. <laughs> Anybody work with Stratus VOS? No. Okay, this I I mean a lot I mean a lot of the challenges that people ran into with Java cross platform were not necessarily due to OS differences. It was because of uh, web application server differences, like WebSphere versus Tomcat was the you know common thing and then the other thing that they hit was often like cross database support where you'd write an application that was meant to support like oracle and postgres and mysql and of course such a undertaking is more difficult in practice than than just write once run anywhere on the on the, on the other hand you, you can run jira on freebsd or lumos and that's never been built for those platforms so like, yeah, exactly. Like it, That's like what I'm saying. Some, you know. from, from, the Jira, from the Jira and Confluence perspective, I'm talking here, uh, the challenges with cross-OS development and deployment were very rarely due to um, operating system differences and were way more often due to web application server and database differences. Those were the things that bit Jira and Confluence uh, early on. The only uh, kind of caveat to that would be that there is 
differences in performance for operating systems when you're running something like Bitbucket server, where uh, uh, shelling out to Git can uh, <laughs> cause very different performance under Windows versus other platforms. And that has been a cause of problem. Hey, can I? Um, this is James Todd. I actually worked on the Tomcat team back at Sun. Oh. Worked at Sun a long time. I'm just kind of curious about folks' comments about reference applications not being made available. Admittedly, Sun didn't uh, leverage all, everything as Java, but I'm still doing Java to this very day. I totally love it. Um, I think Ant and Tomcat kind of changed the world quite a bit personally. I mean, not trying to pat my back or anything, but how, how did Sun not make reference implementations readily available? It wasn't that they I'm didn't sure make them readily available. It's that, like, the, at the time, they were not as mature as the alternatives. And Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And, and Sun, like, I remember going to... I, kind of ironically, it was probably early 2001, like January or something, going to the Sun office in the World Trade Center and to see a presentation about Java. And, you know, basically the, the sales engineers there were like, look, we're not interested in producing something that you're going to run your production applications on. Like, oh, we're interested yeah, in I agree. Actually, I, I think it, it's shiny and awesome, frankly, changed the world. I was about ready to read how to do, you know, Borland and X Windows and all sorts of stuff. So I think Java like liberated a ton of things. Um, frankly, I'm really fascinated with Rust. I love the oxide threads and conversations. But the fit and finish, I mean, Sun should have owned a number of businesses like Veritas, EMC, etc. Oh, amen. Amen. Right, right. Totally, totally. I mean, and, totally. and James, this is how, I mean, that was the deck on which we got them to basically fund us for Fishworks, right? Is that we, Sun had invented NFS and when we started Fishworks in 2006, we had 0.1% share of the NAS filer space. It's like, that's embarrassing. And I always felt yeah. like the problem was just not quite getting to that. And I mean, Sun had a hard time putting these incredible pieces together into a fit and finished product. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's a related one uh, near and dear to my heart from the late 80s. Sun Sun was the number three router company. <laughs> right. no, nobody knew that we made routers. Yeah, Tom, your, your retrospective on stuff is just fascinating. I mean, I worked on the Juxta team for a while, by the way, which I think was genie If you could have just got our shit together, right? Um, but anyway, it just felt, felt like we were kind of in a little bit of a bubble celebrating things, and then people were coming along with us, but then we didn't go with them. I'm not sure what that gap was, but I'm not sure. But anyway, I'll step down. Thanks for letting me speak in. This is awesome. Yeah, James, thanks for the comments. I, 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 the end man, Juxta and Jeannie, you were I, I remember at some point we had, I do you remember we were, we were drinking coffee out of like Juxta cups? Do you remember this? Juxta was I, do. I, I mean, is you know, being a peer-to-peer -peer sort of guy and loving decentralization, I wish a hell of a lot more Facebook, for example, was decentralized, you know? So the technology Sun had in the day one and continue to build and evolve were spot on, clearly, right? Like in the IDE that, you know, NetBeans, again, very Frankenstein -y to your earlier point, just amazing. I actually had Juxta working within NetBeans at one point. Probably nobody knows that. I did that right before I left. Um, but in any event, it had all the gems and jewels and frankly, reference implementations were readily made available. And the world's kind of moved on without Sun. But within Sun, I'm not sure what it was. I don't think it was engineer infighting. I don't think it was marketing and product conflicting with each other. But the execution was clearly lacking on many fronts. Well, we, we, we didn't really have any end user DNA. 
we were we were all about you know being developers and helping developers. I mean, Tom, your comment about Apple Kit that's just resonates with me so much. I mean, you know, I, I actually I started building apps, kind of looking at what Apple was doing as far as UI. I mean, and they hide all the details, right? So, but yeah. Um, on on the topic of of uh, not having any end user DNA, uh, son specifically. So you guys, no, you guys were you guys were talking about uh, uh, AWT uh, GUI earlier, and Joel Spolsky in one of his other uh, one of his more rambling articles, I think, called uh, Lord Lord Palmerston on programming. He was he was talking about various cross platform GUI options. And and he he compared Sun's uh, GUI implementations in Java, AWT and Swing, to uh, Star Trek aliens who had been watching humanity through a telescope and knew what human food was supposed to look like, but didn't know what it was supposed to taste like. And and his his point being that they never really got the GUI got their GUIs to feel. Uh, like like a native GUI should. Yeah, I don't I don't differ with that. The thing is, that's a server company just going that far and trying to get there. Right? I mean, AWT is horrific. So, well, it, Rem- it reminds me of the plot of Galaxy Quest, <laughs> right? Well, actually, what's funny is that that exact and that almost to the word analogy was used to me to explain the source code of AIX. That someone had been one of our customers had had a source license to AIX, and they described AIX as Unix as if written by a an alien species from another planet that had been given POSIX but no other context. You never heard AIX. I mean, Unix. <laughs> right, exactly. I would argue that cross 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 OS uh, GUI is inherently an extremely difficult problem to to solve. Where if you're trying to write once and make it run in you know, on Mac and Windows and to look native and feel native to both of those uh, platforms, that's still not really a solved problem today, uh, in my opinion. And you can see that in the, like, in the proliferation of, of Electron as a solution to that problem. Oh, Mozilla's, run around it. Mozilla's Zool got pretty close back in the day, at, at, at least at least on Windows and and desktop Linux. I I can't vouch for how, how good it might have been on Mac, but it was yeah, certainly better was to do. It was certainly possible to, to do right. better than Swing. It was definitely. It was still extremely difficult to get right, uh, even if you're native to that to that development environment. And Zool was uh, extremely difficult to work in. Um, I imagine most people would read the initial documentation book and walk away and try and do something a little bit easier. In my opinion, but Ian, hasn't the browser become that effectively? I mean, isn't the browser that? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Is like the 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 browser and by extension Electron has been the 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 like de facto solution over the past I don't know four years or so, which uh, like in my opinion is also just a bit of a an end run around the problem where it's like well we can't solve this problem. Let's just do a window. And then inside that is another browser. And then you can do whatever the hell you want inside of that. And it'll look like a web app. It won't look like a native the, app. The success. It'll look like a web app everywhere. Actually, you know? the, su- the success of that approach, though, highlights the fact that people actually don't give, like, two hoots about native controls for the most part. Like, so all the stuff about, like, Java doesn't look right, 
uh, nor does any Electron application. They all look like the Electron application. They don't look like the native platform very much at all. I kind of got excited about, um, I think it was JSF, Java Server Faces, which the follow, and frankly, I stepped away from UI stuff at, at that point. Beyond Swing, I mean, um, anybody take a look at that at all? But again, I, I totally went to big data. Well, that, that, that's a server-side web framework, right? Yeah, JSF, I got the thing, the, thing, the thing that I got excited about at one point was uh, the SWT toolkit from IBM, which kind of takes the the uh, WX widgets approach of just of, of mostly doing wrappers on top of the actual platform. Well, it's kind of like AWT done better. I, I guess it's really what it is. AWT being like alpha and then along comes, you know, beta. And then at least it, at least it got started. And I think there is something out there today. If one really wanted to look into it. So push my speaker um, if others need it. I again, thoroughly enjoyed this. And thanks for hosting all this. This is awesome. Oh, you, the James Scripps, yeah, yeah, no, you're all good. The, the, so, um, the, but in terms of like the, the browser having kind of become the, the, the de facto way that we, we interface effectively graphically with these applications, I feel like the, the substrate on which we build is virtually all open source. Is, is there a proprietary, what is the proprietary alternative to React or Angular or what have you? Is there one? I can't imagine there. I mean, haven't they all died? Isn't it so all open source? Is Swift uh, open that, that, that's fair. That the, no, the, Swift the, is open source. But you know, are the maybe on these mobile ecosystems. But it feels to me that like all that stuff is open source, which is actually a pretty big step in the right direction. Probably the only real analogs are native and native platform stuff like Microsoft Foundation classes or whatever. That's probably been open source at this point. Oh, Microsoft! Side, Microsoft keeps trying to. I mean, they they they've had like a four or five different GUI toolkits now that are supposed to be the native way of doing Windows apps. First you had Win32, then you had MFC, then Windows Forms, then WPF, uh, Universal Windows Platform, and now WinUI <laughs> is supposed to be the new, new thing. And 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 most developers are, are ignoring, most third-party developers seem to be ignoring what Microsoft is doing and saying either... We'll we'll keep going with our old Win32 code, or we'll use Electron. Well, ironically, ironically, like hell, even some teams in Microsoft use Electron. Ironically, like, WPF Microsoft teams. WPF from a programming perspective, like at least in its original incantation, basically was like Swing that they were going to pretend was not Swing, something something lawsuits, <laughs> but like it was Swing that it was Swing that required for its time a, a relatively high end GPU. I mean, the I, the whole idea of native applications is kind of going away to some extent because right. you know, outside of highly, highly specialized, very vertical things, it's just not necessary anymore. Like, who cares? You know, like run it in a web browser. It doesn't matter. I, I, you know, the, I can take a performance hit on my absurdly powerful, you know, desktop machine, which itself is kind of going away because I can do most of the stuff. Like right now, I'm I'm doing this on my phone, right? I can't even do this on my desktop. Which well, who, who, whoever thought the internet would be fast enough for Google Docs? And and as far as accessibility is concerned, just because uh, I'm I'm sure someone is wondering what I think about this, um, it's it's probably I I would say it's generally easier to get accessibility right in a web app than in a native app, at least on Windows. 
Well, I would hope so. I mean, you know, if nothing else, like you have structured markup that the application could be sending to the end user, whether they do or not, I think is, you know, maybe not so much anymore, but that's the theory anyway. I, I did want to make, there, there is an interesting analogy to be made when we talked about sort of Sun and the Java days back in the, you know, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, and the idea of reference implementations. Maybe the analogy is more that what the way that I, my impression of the way that Sun was looking at Java was the way that the X11 people looked at X and like the Athena toolkit. They were like, look, we're going to give you, you know, here's a bunch of standards. We're not going to like, you know, we're going to give you mechanism, not policy. That was always kind of the mantra in the X11 world. And it kind of felt like that's what the Sun folks were doing with Java. They were very interested in the standards and owning those. They were not so interested in like the actual baked in software ecosystem. Yeah. I also just I remember that mantra. Yeah. I feel we just did a did as a as a company we did just a very poor job of going and connecting it all to actually deliver something of value to the end user. I mean, Dan, I just had my head in my hands when you're describing. Okay, first of all, I, the, the WTC office. I I mean, I was in that office. Would have been the same time you were basically in early 2001. Um, thankfully, um, no one was in that office on the morning of 9/11, um, and the only Sun employee lost was actually on one of the one of the aircraft. But the um, just, I can just feel like I'm in the room with you when they're saying like, "Oh no, no, this is not for production apps. This is not for." It's like, what are we doing here? Are, like, are we talking about? Aren't you trying to sell me? Like, aren't you at the end trying to make a product that I am going to pay money for? And I feel that like a lot of things that we were doing were not didn't make that impossible. In fact, they would have made it easier, but it did require us to connect more dots than we we tend to connect. Well, well this is where I thought was jumper, right? I mean, I, I got a wonderful X server from Sun, but I, but I didn't get Motif, you know? <laughs> right. Well, this is what I feel like was the biggest gap in this essay was um, this notion of a, of a rational actors in this environment. And uh, my favorite, one of my favorite anecdotes from Sun along these lines is uh, Jonathan Schwartz stood up in front of the audience and pointed to open Solaris downloads and the number and said, we know where each of those is from, and each one of those is a potential buyer of the ZFS appliance because they're all downloading OpenSolaris for ZFS. And I just thought the, the sequence, the like mental gymnastics to get from one place to the other made no sense. In other words, there, there might have looked like there was an open source strategy, but that is a very generous. Well, and so, yeah, I mean, this is very on point, Adam, because I, I mean... I believed in the abstract in that strategy, but then there was no real execution on it. And in particular, there was a company that had adopted effectively everything that Sun had put out in terms of software and wanted to also buy Sun hardware and to run all the Sun software on. And they couldn't get the hardware to show up. And uh, do you know where I'm going with this, Adam? No. Oh, so this is... That company wrote a blog entry called The Sun Does Not Shine On Me, and that's Jason Hoffman at Joyent. And in The Sun Does Not Shine On Me, he Jason describes all, and we definitely have to go to the web archive to get this one. This is long before I was at the company, but describes how enthusiastic they were to adopt all of the Sun software and how heartbreaking it was that he couldn't make hardware. He's like, and actually, like someone from Dell actually saw this and immediately made gear show up 
and uh, solved all my problems for me from a go-to-market perspective. And I, I think you know who that person was from Dell, Adam. Oh, really? Was it Steve? It's Steve. That's awesome. I so, have no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so our boss, my co-founder, Oxide CEO Steve Tuck, was the, that, that was the person at Dell who, and Steve's got terrific stories about the inside of making that happen, where he basically, you know, in classic like scrappy go-to-market fashion, diverted a box that was headed towards another customer, apologized to them, diverted it to to Jason, and got a huge win at at, at Joyent, and ultimately he. I don't think Steve is here. If he is, he's going to please go volunteer. But the um, he couldn't get Dell to take Facebook seriously as a customer. And left Dell because uh, Dell did not see Facebook as a relevant Dell customer in uh, this would have been like 2009. Um, so, so open source successful in breaking down those barriers, but then you know then it's down to execution. It, it, that, that was it. Broken down the barriers. That was it to me. It's just like and actually like it, there's a certain degree to which that was the moment we were doomed because the all of the strategy in the world cannot make up for poor execution. And I felt like we had, there are a bunch of strategic things that have been done correctly. And now is the time to like, hey, good news, everybody. All we need to do is take the purchase order and make the gear show up and, and support that customer and stand by them. And we couldn't do it. Like we- well, I, I, heard, I heard that Sun totally lost Wall Street after 2001 because of failure to execute in the aftermath of the attack. So that's it. Well, they, they just could not get shipments together in a hurry. Well, so there were a bunch of things. And so, all right, so th- I do have to tell this story. I'd be, so uh, when I spent a lot of time going back and forth to New York in uh, from 2001 to 2006. And there were a bunch of things. I don't know how much of that was 9-11 aftermath, Tom. There was a, at that point now, Linux on x86 is like indisputably performing quite a bit better than Solaris on Spark. And there are a bunch of other issues that are going on. And Sun is kind of losing the plot at the same time where we've got a lot of exciting things happening with ZFS and Dtrace and so on. And then Andy Bechtelsheim and Kalea and the x86 servers. And there's a whole bunch of reason for optimism. And, but at the same time, like huge struggles and I'm going out to New York a lot. And I, uh, I, at one point the, one of the reps was just like, Hey, I just want to thank you for, you know, I know you're out here a lot and I appreciate it and we appreciate it. And it's great to have you out here with the accounts and with our customers. I'm like, you know, it's a problem. Of course, I mean, of course I'm only out here a fraction of the time that Jonathan is out here. And he's like, yeah, no, actually, um, Jonathan has never been out here. It's like, what? And I, wow. So, uh, the, and um, uh, Jonathan would not travel. And I, I will, I'll leave it at that. Jonathan refused to travel. And I don't think you can be a CEO of a global 2000 company and refuse to travel. It, because I think this is like just, you know, life advice. Uh, when you have customers, you need to go visit the customer where the customer is and you need to go, I mean, Adam, you and I did this a lot going and like, and I know you did this a ton at, at Delphix as well in terms of like actually going out to the customer site, being with them, seeing their problems through their eyes. I mean, I I mean, I know you did a ton of that, like I said, post sun as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, invaluable and getting, getting the real 
I don't know, the, the real dirt and hearing the real anger from customers. Well, because an, an, like an executive briefing center is a home game. And if you only play home games, you are actually only seeing those customers that are already like your big advocates and so on. You're not actually seeing. So, Tom, during those kind of years, I was, I don't know, Adam was with me on a couple of these occasions. We go to customers that were just like, oh, my God, they were so hostile because they were already like kicked sun out. And you're thinking like, I just need to like, I've got like one minute. And in that one minute, I need to buy two minutes. And in the two minutes, I'll buy five minutes. And that was always with like a D-Trace demo. And I always loved like demoing D-Trace in those days. And Adam, I know you had a lot of these experiences too, where like there's this predisposition to being like, I really want to kick you out. And you're making it hard because this is actually sounds kind of interesting. And then you get to the demo and they're like, I just remember being with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in particular, and we are standing in the hallway outside, like they won't let us into their office. And they all have their arms crossed, basically being like, we're about to call security. And I'm kind of like explaining D-Trace. And finally, the guy has this like huge size, like, all right, come in. He's just like, <laughs> all right, woohoo. And we sat down and gave him a demo. He's like, oh, God, yeah, this looks pretty good. Yeah. This looks I'm good. so unhappy right now. I'm so un- Like, you've made my life so much more complicated. Like, it would have been so much simpler. Um, but I, I, and I do feel, and I actually, it's kind of ironic because we actually got to the Spolsky piece, Adam, from this tweet that was going around about the, uh, about the asteroid headed to Sun called Linux on x86. Um, and I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's yeah. I saw that as well, and agreed. It's 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 a multifaceted, layered onion of dysfunction. It's just really important um, to be customer centric. You know, you got to really like if you, when you're and you know, this is something that I always like. I, I just have really admired about. I mean, particularly something that Amazon does very well is that Amazon's super customer centric, and you've got to be that customer centrism is so important and obviously not at all costs but you, there's a lot you can go do i think that sun did not go do anyway. i guess uh i got a quick question i've tried to jump in a couple yeah times sorry ben go ahead shy, so no no don't worry about it um and I, i'm really glad you brought up the amazon side of things or amazon as a customer centric sort of company because it leads into the the this question i have which is like you know i've only read about sun microsystems i'll betray my age here i'm a little bit younger. My daughter uh, thought it was a brewery, and so as long as you knew it was a computer company, <laughs> we're in good shape. <laughs> but I've read a little bit about it, and uh, I guess the it's hard to see it, you know, outside of the context that we're in now. And it's sort of like we're talking about the division between open source or not open source, but software and hardware, and where do you make the money, and all that stuff. And I'm seeing it in the context of now of like the open core model and what's going on with Elasticsearch and whatever weird name Amazon made up that I can't remember and how like you're they're trying to make money off like the they <laughs> last search was making money still are but now they're trying to make more money by trying to keep Amazon from taking that money and I guess it's sort of the flip side of the like there are companies that figured out how to make money off of open source and now they're on to the next problem but I'm wondering why during the Sun Microsystem uh heydays when they were really trying to figure out how to monetize this great open source stuff that they had did they try something akin to open core or was it sort of not feasible for some reason um for sure i mean sun had a bunch of different models under one roof effectively so the what java was pursuing was very different than what the what solaris was pursuing was different than what 
spark was. It was not very coherent. In that regard, Sun performed a lot of experiments for us. <laughs> so we can see a bunch of different things. I mean, I think that, you know, my belief, and this is kind of in this 2004 piece, that but my belief was always that you, that you want to use open source as a way to drive demand for the thing that you indisputably monetize. What will people pay for? And people will pay for a service, any service, right? You know, whatever it is, people will pay for a service because someone else is doing something for them. And I, you know, I have always felt that Amazon could be much more forthcoming with open source than it has been historically and not damage itself because people are still going to pay for Amazon because the, the, the service is so valuable. And I, clearly I mean, not paying for the user interface. <laughs> Josh may have been dealing with the AWS user interface quite a bit. They're not paying for the serial console. We know that, right, Josh? Well, um, or the web thing, or like almost any the command line tooling. The like, I mean, the client. Uh, just it's you know, I, I hear about this customer obsession, but I, I'm, I'm, waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting to see it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the um, but I I feel that the and. Open source serves as a way of driving all of that complementary demand. Um, and I don't know that Sun was not that coherent about it. I don't know, Adam, what do you think? I, I just feel like there was not, it was too. No, for, for sure. I mean, Sun's not that coherent about it, but I think that, you know, even we talk about Elastic, I don't know that that's a great model or, and, and that open core is, 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 is that great of a model, but agreed that you're, you need to drive people towards the thing that you inc- incontrovertibly are adding value that they will pay for. Um, and I think there are a lot of takes in it, but I don't think we've, we've solved that in a writ large uh, or, or in a way that can be applied generically. Yeah, Sun, Sun was selling hardware, but the hardware was, was falling behind. Yes, yes. The software, the software had more political power, but was never monetized. That's right. And I think that the, and we, it needed the we needed to use that to deliver a, a, a better system, and that's the thing that I find. I mean, to me, God's own open source model is when you are using open source to drive hardware sales, because that is like, an Apple could be completely open source and would not lose a single sale. I mean, to the contrary, Apple would be much more dominant. It, it, I think if they were much more forthcoming. They believe their secrecy is very really? important for their success. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. But, but then if, if, if Mac OS were completely open source, wouldn't, and, and that would basically make hack, what we currently call Hackintoshes legitimate and everyone would just run Mac OS on their PCs, right? No, I don't well, think so. Who's, who's uh, yeah. I, I, well, there, there was a period of time when the Macintosh hardware was pretty lackluster. It's only with the M1 that all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's great stuff. Yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll throw this people in there. I mean, I can tell you that I, I have a Mac because I like the software, not because I care about the hardware. Yeah, that's right. Uh, ben, sorry, go ahead. Ben? Oh, yeah, sorry. I forgot that that's my Twitter username. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Listen, man, you got to keep track of your alts here, you know? Uh, yeah, just... This is my 10th sock bucket. No, I'm kidding. Um, I guess the question that comes up when people talk about open source, it's like, especially in regards to free software, it's like, what? why are you doing this and for who? Like the comment that was made of like, uh, uh, oh, if Mac OS was open source, everyone would, would run it on their laptops and Apple would be, you know, 
penniless or whatever. It's like, that's my mom's not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that for her. I tried that with Linux one time. It was awful, right? Like it, I got her a desktop and put Linux. On. I was like, that's, this is going to be better. And that was disrespectful to her, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> kind of she, my life I, 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 yeah, she forgiven you. Has she been like, you know, I have not, I wasn't able to print for three years because of you and your copy. No, <laughs> no Christmas, no iPhone. Christmas card this year. <laughs> that's right. An iPhone and an Apple Watch really fix that one up. <laughs> right, no Christmas card because she couldn't print it. <laughs> oh! But I guess my, my point being here is like uh, for free software, it's like, oh, who's it free for? Is it free for the end user to do whatever they want? Or is it costly, not free for the end user because they don't know what they're doing, right? Is it for the experts or is it for the consumers, right? Um, and, and that's, that's sort I, of the, the lens that I try to think about this. I guess, I guess uh, the... Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing a reason why Joyent was comfortable with making all of Smart Data Center open or Triton um, open source was because I guess you guys figured that the real the real value that you were providing and the thing that that people would that companies would be willing to pay for was the service of of helping them get it set up. And in their data center, and, and, well, and, and cr- critically, it. you had a kernel engineer you could call up who would fix yep. the thing that you had happened to you that was terrible with a hypervisor or whatever. Like that was. You know. so, so I guess you. We had, I we guess had a you lot were of worried about deeply complex interactions from a support perspective. Like, I mean, just it's amazing. Like you sell these turnkey things that totally work for you on one machine and for one customer, and then the next customer comes along. And they're like, my network's funny, and I like in a way that no one could have predicted. And it takes 16 hours of support to like figure out what's wrong with their thing. Like that's worth a lot of money. It is worth a lot of money. And so to that point, our, um, as you can imagine, when we were contemplating open sourcing at all at Jordan, I mean, we're obviously talking to our customers about it and getting their perspective. And one of our largest customers is like, I just want to know that I can continue to pay you. I'm like, yes, of course you continue to pay us. Sorry. Yes, you by, can continue to pay us. By all means. <laughs> Right. And so what you was telling me is like, I just want to make sure that like, you know, you're going to continue to give me, the, you know, this great support and this great product that I've had. And I'm like, you know, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, it's like, oh, then yes, great. Awesome. I can't wait. So, right. And you made two comments, one, one earlier when I thought I was going to speak up and I didn't because the, the topic moved. But you, you, you spoke about uh, Sun being interested in growing the pie and, and just more. They didn't want to disappear. The vision for a hardware company. Uh, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. You, you cut out just for a second after growing the pie. Yeah. Okay, so the growing the pie thing, and then there was the comment about uh, open source and, and hardware together making a lot of sense. Uh, what was the thinking at Sun at the time around Linux, and, and why wasn't Sun one of the first uh, companies to, to embrace Linux? Why was it IBM? Um, you know, that, that seems like it could have been a very different future for them if they had... Uh, back the Linux horse and, and made sure Sun Hardware worked great on Linux and, and uh, provide brilliant servers that uh, you know ne- never never give you any trouble. Uh, it just seems like a well, effort. Or is it that we, we put our own stuff and it's better and, and uh, we want you to play with our open source? Well, I mean, that question's obviously a trap, but um, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, eh, ours was better. I mean, that's honestly, I mean, if you want my honest opinion, it's like we, th- what we saw and still see, honestly, is like there are still tons of things that in that that i mean it's 
you know, across, whether it's service management, fault management, file systems, observability, debugability. So, so bring bring those capabilities it, 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 to it, it, Linux, right? Like it, grow, grow the file really and you, so can't, can you can't participate with the. Unfortunately, you can't force people to be other than who they already are. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like, I mean, right now, right now, ZFS on Linux has been ported to, to Linux for how long, and it still is it it's been made clear it's never going to be adopted it's a, it is a it, it, into mainline it is a rampant layering violation well right? and, and and they they have no compunction about breaking it if it's convenient right so i mean but, but on the other hand ubuntu fixes it all up and it's trivial to install right, that's right that's right and so which is great so terrific and and you know um good on them the I mean, I do think that. So, I mean, I I don't know. That would not have solved Sun's issue. Let me put it that way. That is not that. I do not view that as as. I want to disagree with you on, on on one though, Brian. Like like if 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 Sun had been participating all the years, wouldn't they have a lot more to say about the direction? I mean, that's kind of how it goes with with open source. Those who do get to decide, right? And and if you have a history of doing that over time. Uh, might the story not well, be different? Well, I, I mean, you, you, you all, I, I never worked at Sun, but I think that it's also important to contextualize this in the historical context of what was happening at the time. Like, Linux was viewed very much as a toy for, like, well into the 2000s. You know, 2006 or 2007 was when it started becoming kind of real to run, like, enterprise type things on Linux. At least that was my impression. And... You know, like something wow. to bear in mind is that there was a there was a proposal within Sun back in like the early '90s to open source the BSD based SunOS version four. Dan from that unfortunately never went anywhere. You know who that's from, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, I know who that's from. <laughs> that's why that's Larry McGoy. I did. Yeah, but on the on the Linux front, you know, Sun bought Cobalt for two billion dollars, right? Two billion Confederate dollars, Tom. Those were that's that's all yeah. uh, inflated uh, Sun W stock price circa nineteen ninety nine. Jeez, I hope uh, they sold quickly. But then, but then it was pretty much killed by the you know antibodies because everyone thought it was a toy. I mean, you know, the the writing was on the wall for Sun well before the year two thousand. Unfortunately, I remember around nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight talking to a system administrator who pointed to two PCs and he's like, look, these things are half as good as a spark station, but they cost a quarter as much. Yeah. Like give it another two years, you know, like it's, it's just not going to be a comparison. It feels like the biggest, the biggest product missed product direction would have been to have paved the earth with X86 machines with good management. Like, cause the, I mean the, the LOMs and stuff were, were better than, many of the competing things but they just want many units being sold like that's right I, I think a lot of people get confused by this linux kind of red herring and it is much more about the the price performance of the hardware. And, and missing the missing the x86 boat that's right. like yeah. I, mean, I, I, I left in 94 and a part of that was the spark roadmap was looking really bad even that early Yes, SMP uh, saved Spark in that Spark had under underperforming but wildly parallel systems, um, and that's SMP bought us. And I, I know Adam, uh, uh, do you? I mean, Adam and I had this moment during the boom um, when we had just seen the pricing 
on some boxes. Do you yeah, obviously you remember this item? Yeah, I remember. I, I wasn't going to toot my own stupid Prussian horn, though. You should toot your own stupid Prussian horn. Go ahead. Well, so so we were, I think I was an intern even at the time. I'm not sure if it was an intern or I just joined. It was, you know, 2000 or 2001. And we had just released it. It was like an eight core or eight, eight socket, right? Yep, eight CPU, yeah. System. And it cost like $100,000. Yeah, V80, yeah. And I said, you know, $100,000 seems like a lot of money. And we're like, yeah, I don't know. Seems like a lot of money. I said, well, couldn't you buy like a hundred computers, like, like, you know, x86 piece of computers and like string them together or something? And at that moment, we should have like pulled the fire alarm and like forced an all hands on that topic. But instead, we just like went to lunch. Even if you, even exactly. if you only bought, even if you only bought fifty with ECC memory, right, exactly. like that's right. That's right. Well, it, and the thing is, like, I mean, Adam, you and I both remember exactly where we were when we had this conversation. We remember this conversation vividly. I remember you being like, hey, just explain it to me because I'm sure there's a reason for this. Right. I'm new here. I'm new here. And why would someone do that? And I remember thinking, like, why would someone do that? That does seem weird. Eh, I don't know. Go, go figure. <laughs> go I'm sure someone's thinking about I'm it. I'm sure right. someone's thinking above my pay grade. Meanwhile, I think you and I both want the time machine to go back to our ourselves and be like, no, like – it's like Bill and Ted's no. excellent adventure for x86 no, economics. Like, take pick at that thread a little bit, and you could either save the company or become a billionaire or is, or, or die trying. That's right. the sad thing. The sad thing was that the Optron wave happened, right? And Sun was there. They had Optron yes. boxes when yes. AMD 64 happened, and yes. and x86 grew up to become a real 64-bit architecture with a future, like and, and uh, a wholly new like CPU product line emerged, Sun had some of the first and best servers that contained those things. And then I guess they sold eight of them and stopped. I don't know. Like I, they were not expensive what? comparative, really what? compared to like HP I, boxes, at least. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, Sun I, I, didn't I really want to go, go the low margin game that, that uh, Dell and HP were doing. Right. But that's, but that's, and that's, but that's, that's good night, Irene. I mean, <laughs> but that, but that, but that was the thing. I mean, I, I remember at the UltraSpark announcement, that, you know, the local Sun re reseller booked a you know room at some restaurant, and a bunch of us went to see this thing. And McNeely gets up on stage, and I remember him saying this. And if you thought the Deck Alpha was the fastest microprocessor on the market, it's not. It's the UltraSpark one, right? And it, it, like my impression of that was that, gee, all the like weird risk workstation manufacturers are one-upping each other and that's not all that useful because intel is quietly making gains with the pentium yes and they're just cutting the margins razor thin and making it up on volume what are you guys doing you're gonna you're gonna get buried well the margins were not razor thin on the end they have never been razor thin for the cpus for intel intel's always had pretty fat margins but the um it, it, i do think that that josh is right that in 2005 ish there was a lot of reason to believe that a renaissance was possible because I do think that there are a bunch of those things were righted. And Tom Sun had been through rough times before 1991 and it kind of emerged. And I did feel that it was possible, but I, it is also true that there was not really deep interest in running a business at the top of the company. And that, that is, is the, it's guess, pretty unfortunate because the X2100 was like pretty good I at know. the time. Like they were, you know, cheap. And fast, and had a LOM that worked. Like, I, I mean, I, I honestly, God, I wish that I had a rack of X twenty one hundreds right now compared to <laughs> right. the gigabytes and tie-ins and stuff 
like that we've got them in the in the corner. I mean, geez. All right, so I should, Josh, it, it is worth explaining an act of particular cruelty that we have inflicted upon you personally. So Josh is at Oxide, an engineer at Oxide, one of the founding engineers of Oxide. Hello. And, and the, uh, but we have needed, I mean, you've got to develop the software before you actually have the computer built. So poor Josh has had to go stand up the gigabytes and the tie-ins. And Josh, I think we should start a computer company. I don't know about you. I think that, I, that, that, I'm ready. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so you've had to suffer with it. it's like yes I know I, I know it's the thesis of the company that these things are terrible by, by the way they're actually terrible and I'm actually having to deal with it as far as I can tell when this computer boots up that I have it engages a USB NIC driver to talk to the BMC <laughs> and then asks, asks for the boot posture that I have set in the BMC which I did via the API 60% of the time it accepts the new information and the other times it doesn't, but like, but it doesn't even print a message to say that it didn't. It merely boots the wrong thing and there's no way to know. But someone's if you reboot it, reboot it, it might work. Maybe. I don't know. I just, it's just. Must be using UDP over USB. Over so <laughs> like as a customer, Spark didn't have any of those problems. It was just extreme. <laughs> like it was just extremely slow. That's really the, at the end of the, and too expensive. It was yes. slow and expensive, but seriously, it had no other problems. Like, uh, and, and, well, and uh, excuse me, there was the, and then there, there was the uh, the occasionally cash barrier. So we, it's it's like yeah, slow, yeah, it's true. And expensive, so, like, and like not very reliable. So like late UltraSpark three, UltraSpark four, T one, T two era stuff didn't have that specific problem, but like, like seriously, it's just like BIOS stuff and even and UEFI things and and A speed and and AMI and. Like, it's just all such trash. I'm so sorry, Josh. I, I'm so sorry. And I feel that, like, you, because you know what we're building, it's like you, you must be awake during the surgery. You must feel like, I, I can feel all of the pain now, much more sharply. Well, just, I mean, just, the, uh, it's just, the, it's like, so, the thing is, that, again, the X2100 that Sun, like, could yeah. have made more of didn't have these problems, but it had a fast Optron in it, and it was it cheap. So, but like, we couldn't make them show up. That's the problem. Uh, uh, sorry, I know. Hey, yeah. folks. Yeah, sorry. Peter Corliss here. I, d I just wanted to chime in because I was actually a Sun customer at Cisco uh, around 2000, et cetera. And I, I just wanted to say that, like, we stuck by Sun for a long while. And the reason being is because, we're like, we were one of the earliest, biggest websites, you know, uh, before, like, these, these massive systems got started, like, you know. Facebook, all the social media companies, but just as a company website, we're pretty darn, uh, you know, high end there. And so we use the suns because they could support vertical scaling. Like you can get, you know, eight at the time, eight CPUs was a lot, right? You couldn't get that on an 80 X 86 box. You know, you were, in fact, the big thing though, was that sun could scale vertically, but they never really figured out the horizontal scalability. Yeah. And, and I think that if, if they had done that, if they had had a better horizontal scalability system, they could have, you know, done a totally different kind of architecture to continue to support as systems are scaling up. And then I think, you know, it's, it's unspecified here, but one of the nails in the coffin was Nginx. You know, once you started having these architecture systems that supported horizontal scalability, so cheap commodity hardware could do in MOS, 
what you could do with these vertically scaled sunboxes. And I, I think that's really the inflection point for Sun. Okay, this is actually a really interesting point, actually, because I, th I think you're, uh, you're absolutely onto something. Obviously, I mean, you're very, very much in our current thesis, so obviously very strongly agree. But because you're actually getting to the larger impact of open source, namely, we would not have been able to build, we humanity would not have been able to build these scale-out systems without open source. If Nginx had been strictly proprietary, you couldn't do it. Economically, you couldn't do it. And Google couldn't have built what Google built without open source. Amazon could not have built what Amazon built without open source. They needed actually open source to make that commercially viable from a software perspective. And you're right that Sun never really, and there are a bunch of reasons for it that I think have to go do with go to market and the way people are incentivized and compensated and a bunch of other things. But uh, Sun definitely did not really embrace those scale-out systems. Yeah, but also I want to give credit. A lot of people don't realize, you know, again, some people said that they're too young to remember Sun. I remember them well. And I remember going to this one conference, and this is before 9-11, uh, and there's this one trading uh, firm on Wall Street. And I was asking, like, so why do you use, like, every single trader they had had a Sun Spark station on their desktop. Like, not just a PC, a fun Spark station. And, and it was like, well, why do you have that hardware on everybody's desktop? She says, because if we can calculate derivatives microseconds or milliseconds faster, we win the bid. You know, and it was that level of hardware, that silicon. I mean, that's still t available today in, like, high-frequency training. And now there's ASICs. But at the time, like, that was what you were trying to do is that you know, you would make billions on whether you could just calculate faster. And, you know, so the, the, you know, so for those kind of use cases, Sun was just unparalleled. But obviously, you know, the reason why x 861 is because 90% of use cases don't rely upon that kind of millisecond scale difference. Like the, the, most users, blink of an eye, performance is fine enough. Well, I meant x86 was just faster. Than that. So it's like if you're, well, it, it, it took a long time for x86 to get to that. Point, it, it was exactly. it was true by. I mean, it's interesting that Tom says he saw the writing on the wall by '94. Certainly, for me personally, the inflection point was at 998. So in '98, the um, with the with the the Pentium Pro, it is very clear. And then certainly by by '99, 2000, it's like it's. It, and we were trying to kind of express to the, at the same time, I don't know, how many of those Cheetah Plus meetings did you get roped into? Too many. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. I roped you into those, yeah. didn't I? Yeah, you, you, absolutely. Thank you for that. But, but yeah, I mean, like you're... <laughs> like, you're have you, you been waiting for me to like, say that for like 20 years? Yeah, kind of. Right. Kind of. I've been waiting for an apology. I think it was overdue. <laughs> but, but yeah, I've noticed that you're that, like you're... Uh, your desktop back in your dorm room was a lot faster than the sun box in the computer lab, for sure. Right. So, yeah, you, exactly. You had an even more visceral experience where you got like this supposedly fancy sun lab at an undergraduate institution. And you're like, actually, like your sun lab is not as fancy as my dorm room computer, by the way. Yeah. Well, we've gone, uh, it's gone, uh, we've been trying to keep these to an hour. Clearly, uh, this is a, this is an evergreen topic. Um, I think in part because I think because like Sun was lovable. I think the, the reason that this is an evergreen topic is people want to reason about this because there were there were aspects of Sun that were uh, technologists appreciated, and we'd like to know like uh, was the asteroid fated to collide with with the Sun Microsystems planet? In conclusion, yes. No, I don't know. <laughs> 
Um, on that note, thank you very much, everybody. I don't. I think we maybe. Uh, I actually did a little bit of an exciting news uh, in that we at Oxide are um, are bringing up our first server boards this week. Extremely exciting. So we've got uh, we we go to Power On uh, next week. I'm about to fly out. Um, so to do part, engage in the software bring up. So I don't know that we're going to be here next week. Um, we, but for all of the right exciting reasons, and as one of our colleagues said, bring up always goes. Uh, much better than plan or much worse than plan. There's no in the middle. So um, so we'll see you in one week or 17 <laughs> weeks. That's exactly right. So on that bring note. Up can, bring up can really bring you down. Yeah, that's right. Hey, with a knock on wood. All right, everyone, take care. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.